Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> just seems to get colder and colder, doesn't it? I just, I, I, I think, I think I said this two weeks ago, but I'm going to say it again. Thank you for braving the weather and putting up with the cold to come out and be a part of this today. Um, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 15, so if you want to head over there to start off, that'd be great. Um, today we're going to be talking about disagreements. That's a fun topic, right? Disagreements have the ability to do two things in our lives. They can either sharpen us and help us refocus on the main things of life, or it can cause dissension and disunity. And so we're going to see in Acts chapter 15 a disagreement within the church. But as we look at our culture today, like, disagreements are abounding everywhere we go, right? We live in a culture where we have given the world the ability to just disagree and fight full vent without ever even looking each other in the eye. Like, it's so easy to fight with people on Facebook and never have to look them in the eye. We live in a culture where disagreements seem to never end. Everywhere we turn, we can see disagreements being handled poorly. And as I thought about this idea of disagreements, I, I thought of some examples, some, some real-world examples of disagreements. And so first up, of course, we have politics, right? Politics are just nonstop disagreements, right? And I'm not making any statements here. No matter what side of the aisle you may fall on, I think we can all agree and say that the, the disagreements and the arguments that are consuming the national media are just getting ridiculous. And it's not just these guys it's every politician. All they do is fight and argue, and I just want to grab them and, like, slap their hands and put them in a, you know, like one of those get-along t-shirts. Have you ever seen those? You get, like, a 3X t-shirt, and you stick two kids in. I want to do that with these two. Knock off your crap. You're going to go sit in the corner and see you can agree on something. But it's not just politics, right? Other popular arguments for our, that divide our country, we have... Gun, guns, right? We were just talking about the sportsman's retreat. Yeah, let's go blow some stuff up and let's shoot stuff. But there are people out there that are very opposed to this. I should be able to carry my gun everywhere I go or not. It's just a disagreement. Again, I'm not making any statements on what side I'm on either way, but just these are just popular disagreements. How about what we put in our bodies, right? What we eat? We have vegan versus meat eaters, right? If we're, if we're eating meat, we, we're going to destroy our bodies. We shouldn't do that. It's, it's bad. How about in the church, right? We never disagree in the church, right? Pews versus chairs, right? I just can't worship God if I'm not sitting in a hard wooden pew. Like, it's just not the same, right? I've actually heard those words. How about sports? Sports seems to be never-ending, too. How about one of the biggest arguments? I mean, this is a little dated, right? How could he have done this, right? Brett Favre turning from a Packer to a Viking. Oh, no. And, of course, one of the most important arguments of our time, an argument that has the potential to separate friends to break up relationships, to cause families to never speak. Of course, I'm talking of iPhone versus Android. One of the biggest arguments of our time, right? Seriously, though, 
It's easy for disagreements to separate and divide us as a country, as a church, and as humanity. I know you've been in situations where disagreements have gone wrong. And maybe you've lost friends and family, and maybe you've left churches because of disagreements that have gone wrong. Today, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 15. And in these passages, we are going to see a disagreement that had the potential to change everything that we believe today. Everything. It had the potential to separate the early church and stop it from going any further. On one side of the argument, we have Paul and Barnabas, the heroes we've been looking at the past few weeks. On the other side, we have a group called the Judaizers. And I'll explain a little bit what they are later. But before we do that, let's just jump into our passage for the morning and start dissecting and seeing what this disagreement is all about. So starting at chapter 15, verse 1. It says, but some men came from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversation of the Gentile, the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up, And said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So let's stop right there. Right there in that first six verses we see the dispute, the argument. We see Paul and Barnabas and they are on mission. And they are preaching the gospel and they are leading people to the Lord. But as usual that we've seen in almost every chapter where people are coming to the Lord and getting saved, opposition starts to arise. But here we have a new type of opposition. It says some of the Jews were insisting that the non-Jews who were becoming Christians, the Gentiles, that they needed to be circumcised in order to become Christian. This is a group that we now refer to as the Judaizers. They wanted to make the, the new Gentiles, the new Christians, into Jews before they could become a Christian. They thought it was a, a pathway that they had to get through. And so Paul and Barnabas start arguing with them for a while, and they just finally decide, you know, this is bigger than us. We need to take this back to the apostles and the elders back at Jerusalem, and we need to discuss, with this, discuss this with them and get their decision. I really love verse 3, though. Like, even though they've had this argument, and they're possibly questioning, are we doing things right? As they go back to Jerusalem, along the way, they keep preaching and talking about Jesus. They never stop preaching and talking about Jesus. In the past couple weeks, we've talked about this idea of living on mission, and this is just another little tangent thought for that, those two messages. We can see in this passage that living on mission is not just about the destination, Right? It's not just go here and make disciples. It's actually as you go, along the way, the entire way you go to this destination, you make disciples. Living on mission is making disciples as you go. 
It is a way of life. So our boys get to Jerusalem, and the argument about circumcision follows them. So they all decide to meet up as a big group, our Jerusalem council, and discuss it. We can read this, and we can ask, what, what is the big deal? Right? What, why do the Judaizers, why are they so focused on circumcision? Maybe some of you are actually sitting here thinking, what even is circumcision, right? Like, that's a fun topic. What, what is that? Well, I'll tell you, um, I got the joy of explaining to my boys last week, as Andrea and I were discussing this topic and reading it aloud, and they start asking questions, I got the joy of explaining to them what circumcision was. So, kids, if you don't know what circumcision is, ask your parents on the way home. Moving on. So, because the real argument here is not circumcision. The real argument is the law of Moses. Circumcision is just a piece of that. And in order to fully understand why these Judaizers are demanding that, we must look back at the Old Testament. The book of Deuteronomy is a retelling of all of the laws that God had given to Moses. And it is right before they enter into the promised land. It is God explaining to Moses and all of the people, this is what you need to do. These are all of the commands that I have given you. And you need to hold to these. And so Deuteronomy 30 verses 17 through 20 comes at the end of that book and it shows us what would happen if the people didn't follow the laws. And so I have that behind me. If you want to follow along, I'll just read through that. It says, but if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness about you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. What that is, the life and death, blessing and curse, he's referring to the law. He's saying, I, I've given you this whole law and these are the expectations for you as Jews. He goes on and says, therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, his commands, and holding fast to him. And he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. Now for those of us who have read through most of our Bibles, or even all of it, we know that the Jews did not follow the laws. And the book of Jeremiah tells us of a time when Israel is completely overthrown as a country. Their temple is destroyed, and, and the, the, the remnant of those who are still living that weren't killed when the country was overthrown, the remnant is exiled to another country and forced to assimilate to become like these other countries. God specifically tells Jeremiah that it was because of Israel's failure, their failure to follow the laws of Moses. And that lasted for hundreds of years until the remnant finally returns back to Israel, returns back to the temple, rebuilds it. But then again, years later, they're invaded by Rome. And the Roman authorities are ruling over them until this time in Acts. The belief of many of the Jews, especially these Judaizers, is that if they didn't follow the law of Moses, they would be overthrown and destroyed again. 
Like we have to keep these laws. That's why we had the Babylonians and we had the Assyrians. That's why all of this happened to us. We have to keep the law. Yeah, Jesus is great. That's, let's do that too. But we have to keep the law. Two weeks ago, we talked about how the early followers of Jesus, they, they were Jews. And they believed that Jesus had come to redeem the Jews. They thought they needed the law and Jesus. These people were Jews who had been trained to respect and obey the law of Moses. It was, it was respect. It was honor. It was obedience. And we have to remember that Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, all Hebrews, the, the New Testament, they didn't just have that. Like, oh, okay, what does Paul say about the law? Oh, okay, now I get it. They didn't have that. They only had the Old Testament and what God had told them. And now what these new men were coming in and saying was the rules. There's a large group of priests in this Jerusalem assembly and many people who followed the Old Testament laws. It was a time of transition in the early church. That's what the book of Acts is. It's a time of transition. And times of transition are always difficult for us as humans. But what these men are saying is actually very dangerous. They're attempting to mix law and grace as Jesus would say back in the Gospels, he said they're trying to pour new wine into old wineskins, and that just doesn't work. They were blocking the new and living way to God that Jesus had opened when he died on the cross. They were rebuilding this wall between the Jews and the Gentiles that, that God had broken down through Jesus' work on the cross. They were putting the heavy Jewish burden of the law on these new Gentile believers. They were saying a Gentile must first become a Jew before he can become a Christian. It's not sufficient for them to simply trust Jesus. They must obey Moses also. So with that, we can see that this demand for circumcision from the Judaizers was actually a fear-based demand. They were afraid of what would happen if they didn't hold to the law. And so we've seen the dispute, and we've heard both sides of the argument. In the next few verses, we're going to see the defense, the defense of our boys standing up and talking about what God was doing. So follow along again as I start at verse 7. It says, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through, through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as, is, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David. 
that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So Paul, Barnabas, Peter, and James, they step up in defense of what God had been currently teaching them. Peter stands up during this meeting and reminds everyone of what they had already discussed. This takes us back to Acts 11, where Peter had already discussed with the church leaders about what God was revealing to him, about food laws, and about the Gentiles getting saved. And he was reminding them of what they had already decided as a group. Verse 10, Peter's reminding them how the law is actually a burden for all of them. And none of them have been able to keep all of the points of the law. And how Jesus came to fulfill the law of Moses. Then in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas step up and they start giving their missions report and explaining how hundreds of people are getting saved from across the nations. And then James steps up and he brings the whole thing back to Scripture, reminding the listeners of what God's actual words were, telling them back in the prophets, explaining to them that this is what God had prophesied was going to happen, and then he points them to the future eternal kingdom. We can see through all of these arguments a truly godly defense and argument from our men. So often in the church we hear about unity. We say things like, we need to be united with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We can look around Boone and we can see that we have 20 poor churches in this town. And we can ask the question, can't we all just get along? Why are there so many churches? But this passage is pointing us to the fact that unity is not actually at all costs. Unity is not the most important idea for us. Unity is important, but it's not the main thing. These men are arguing for circumcision, saying that they needed to add to faith. Faith isn't enough, they said. They're saying just believing in Jesus, that's not enough. We need to add the law to this whole faith thing. And Peter steps up in the face of disunity and says, no, that is not right. That is not what Jesus taught us. That is not what he has revealed to us. We are not going to be part of this adding law thing. We are going to stand up for truth in the face of disunity from the Judaizers. Unity is not at all costs. Unity is not the highest value when it comes to the kingdom of God. In this passage, we can see that truth is more important than unity, especially when the truth is rooted in the gospel. We are not called to agree with those in the church who are taking away from the gospel or trying to put burdens on, putting extra things onto the gospel. When we ask why there are so many churches in this town, it's because of this idea. Doctrine matters. What we say we believe as a church matters. We can love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and other churches. We can fellowship with them. But the reality is that many of them believe very different things on some very core beliefs of ours. We are not called to sacrifice core aspects of our beliefs simply for unity. The liberal churches in America have taken this too far. Many of those churches want to say things like, unity over truth. 
Like unity is the main thing. Love, love over truth. They read their Bibles and they find things in it that, that they don't feel are very loving or very unifying. They're like, I, this, I don't know if this is for us nowadays. And so they start to water down the truth of the gospel. That's not okay. We have to stand up for what the truth of the Bible said. We here at Stonebridge believe that this is 100% God's word, every word in it, and it should be applied to our lives. Now, after all the discussions and arguments have been stated, we can see the decision in the next section. Starting at verse 19, we have James still speaking as it picks up right there, and clearly we can see that he's the leader of this council, probably the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so he makes his decision. He says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are in, of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and for us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, fare well. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, were, were, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with, with many others also. So leaders and the whole church, led by the Holy Spirit, make a decision. They make a doctrinal decision about salvation, and they make a practical decision about Christian living. The church decided that Jews and Gentiles, they're saying, they're all sinners before God. And they all can only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one need, forgiveness of sins, and there's only one gospel to meet that need. But then they say all doctrine must lead to duty. Like, we can't just say that we believe this and it not change our lives. James says that in his epistles, and so does Paul later in his letters. It's not enough to simply accept biblical truth to say, yep, I believe it. We must apply it personally to us every day. Church problems are not solved by passing rules. They're by putting into practice God's word. 
James advises the church to write the Gentiles and share the decisions of the conference. This letter asks for obedience on two commands and a willingness to agree on two personal compromises. The two commands were that the believers should avoid idolatry and immorality, sins that were prevalent among the Gentiles. And the two compromises, what they would willingly abstain from eating blood and meat, meat from animals that had died by strangulation. The two commands aren't anything special. That's not an extra thing. Um, Idolatry and immorality have always been wrong in God's eyes since the beginning. This is just restating what is important to God. But the two compromises concerning food, those are somewhat confusing, right? What, what is the deal with the blood and the strangulation? Well, in the early church, they did a great deal of eating together, practicing hospitality. Most churches met in homes, and some of those assemblies had love feasts in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. It was probably very similar to some of our connection groups, getting together and eating together and digging into the Word and praying with each other. That's what the church looked like in Acts Our connection groups are a great example of what the church in Acts looks like. But the problem was, if the Gentile believers ate food that the Jewish believers considered unclean, that which had blood, if they were eating the blood, or things that had been died by strangulation, which were considered unclean, it would cause division in those little house churches. It's beautiful to see that this letter expresses unity. And I said, I know I said unity is not at all cost, but this letter still does actually promote unity. Unity of people that have been debating and defending opposing views. The legalistic Jews willingly give up, insisting that the Gentiles had to be circumcised. And the Gentiles willingly accept a change to their eating habits. It's a loving compromise that did not any in way did not any way affect the truth of the gospel. This decision accomplished something incredible. It strengthened the unity of the church and kept it from splitting into two extreme law and grace groups. That's what I meant at the beginning. This all had the the potential to split the church into these two opposing law and grace groups. But this decision stopped that. This is learning to give and take in the impractical arrangements of life. It's not a doctrinal compromise that they state. It's living together. This decision brings blessings as the letter is shared with the congregations of the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas, they take the good news to Antioch and the church rejoices and they're encouraged because they know that they don't have to follow. They've watched the Jews for years not being able to hold up to these laws and now they're saying, yes, we don't have to now either. We can learn a lot from this difficult experience in the early church. Problems and differences are opportunities for growth or they have the ability to divide and cause anger and frustrations. Churches need to work together, take time to listen, to love, to learn from each other. That's why we have the body. How many hurtful fights and church splits could be avoided if only some of God's people would listen, love, and learn from each other? And take time to let the Holy Spirit speak into arguments. This is gospel clarification. Our message is follow Jesus. 
That's it. That's the gospel. Follow Jesus. Not follow Jesus plus, right? Churches around all over the place now, they want to add to that even to this day. We have churches that say the the message is, the gospel is follow Jesus plus baptism, confirmation, communion. They want to add all these religious acts that you must do in order to be saved. That's not what the gospel is. But there's other churches out there that want to say things like, well, it's, it's, uh, it's follow Jesus plus, don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't get tattoos. Like, that's the other side that we have out there. That's not the gospel either. Yes, following the Bible and listening to what God speaks to us should cause a change in our lives. But it is not the point of the God. We do not have to give up these things in order to be accepted by Jesus. I remember when I was going to Bible college, when I was graduating Bible college, and I had a classmate who came to me. He, he's like, I, I want to bring you. He was already a senior pastor at a church as we were graduating. He goes, I want to bring you in as my youth pastor. He knew that doctrinally, we were right in line. We believed all the same things. He knew that relationally, we were connected. Him and I got along. We were perfect. He knew my passion for youth and for the gospel, but he was concerned about how, my, how his church would take someone like me. So I'm clearly a little bit more outspoken than some people. His church was very conservative, and I knew it. And so I looked right at him, and I said, Well, David, let me tell you what my plans are when I graduate Bible college. I'm going to go start wallpapering my temple. And he's like, what? What does that mean? I go, I'm going to start working on tattooing my entire arm and possibly the rest of my body. I don't know for sure yet, but I'm going to be covering my body in tattoos. How do you think your church will respond to that? At that point, we both agreed that it probably was not the best partnership for us, and we decided to just take different paths, and he found somebody else to be his youth pastor. It doesn't mean that I don't love David. It doesn't mean that I don't pray for his church when I see problems going on in their church. They just have different thoughts than me. But I also knew that getting tattoos wasn't sinful. It wasn't something, and it was something that I wanted to do. And I wasn't going to work for a church that wasn't going to approve of that. And the reality is, I have actually had a lot of gospel conversations because of my tattoos. Possibly more than carrying my Bible and definitely more than wearing a Stonebridge t-shirt. I promise you that. The reality is that we have a lot of gospel conversations every day. And how are we going to have them? We have to realize that the people in Acts were still defining what the gospel was. We need to realize that we are free in Christ. But what does that freedom even mean? It doesn't mean that we make compromises that lead to sin, right? We, we do not have to hold the commands of the Old Testament, that's true, but we don't just go full vent like, well, sin tonight and ask for forgiveness tomorrow. That's not what freedom is either. But we don't have to follow these Old Testament laws of not wearing mixed fibers and not eating certain foods. We're free in Christ, but we also have an obedience to Christ. And that's what the Jerusalem Council's decision points us to. In our final section today, we can see even more disagreements pop up. And then the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey 
And so follow along as I read again. I'll read all the way to verse 5 of chapter 16, our last section for today. Starting at verse 36, it says, And after some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from, from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria, Sicilia, strengthening all the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Codium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were there in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So first off, more disagreements. Paul and Barnabas, they they disagree on this idea of taking Mark with them. Why? Well, they, Paul and Barnabas both know the end of the race. They both know where God is leading them. They both know what God's heart is. They know that they are supposed to make disciples of all of the nations. They just had different paths to get there. Different does not mean wrong. There can be many paths to making disciples. Making disciples is not a black and white plan and a four-step program like do these four things and you will have a disciple of Christ who loves the Lord with all his heart, soul, and mind. That's not, that's not the way making disciples goes. It can be messy because we're dealing with people and it can look very different to each person you work with because every one of us in here is different. Barnabas was an encourager. That's his name son of encouragement. He saw potential in John Mark, even though John Mark had bailed on them once before. Barnabas was willing to take a chance on somebody. He saw the potential. Paul was an evangelist. He wanted to reach the lost. He wanted to reach the ends of the earth, and he knew he needed to surround himself with people he could count on during the long days ahead. Like, he needed to be able to wake up on Tuesday morning and know that his team was going to be there waiting for him. So if these two men, it was best to separate and go their own ways. It doesn't mean that they're angry with each other. It doesn't mean that they still don't love each other. It was just different paths to making disciples. What I want to make the analogy for you all here is Matt and I. This is Matt and I. Matt is a Barnabas. Matt is an encourager, and he sees potential in people when I don't always see it. And he's willing to work and to encourage and to love and do things and just spend time. I'm a Paul. I want to run and I want to go to the ends of the earth. Matt talked about that last week. I want to see this whole city come to know Jesus and I don't have time. If you're not going to be here tomorrow, you're not going to do the things that I'm counting on. I got to move on. I got to grab more people that I know I can count on. That is the joy of the plurality of leaders that we have here. Because the reality is I need to be a little bit more encouraging and he needs to be a little bit more. Let's go. (laughs) We hold each other accountable for the sake of what's right. 
And I also don't, don't read into this that we're going to separate. We're not going to pull a Paul and Barnabas. That's not what's happening. That's, it just means that we have different approaches to making disciples and reaching the nation. It's incredibly helpful. Our last bit here, who is Timothy? We're going to see a lot of him the rest of this book. It says that he's a Jew and a Greek. What does that mean? It means that that's going to open more doors for Paul. Being a Jew and a Greek, he can go places where others wouldn't be able to. But then verse 3, we have this super confusing verse. Paul takes Timothy and circumcises him. What in the world? What were you just arguing about for an entire chapter? What did you just decide as a group? We don't have to do this. It's because he wanted Timothy to be able to go into those temples. And all the Jews knew who Timothy's dad was. And the the rules of the synagogues, it's not a, a Christian thing or not, it's just the simple rules of the synagogues. You couldn't get in there if you weren't circumcised. I know, crazy rules, but whatever. So he circumcised him so that he could gain access, so that he could use him. And Timothy willingly did it. Sometimes, just because we don't have to give something up, we do for our brothers in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about how all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Yes, it is lawful for me to tattoo my entire body if I so choose and have the money to but it's not profitable for me to lead a funeral service with them all on display. And so I will cover my tattoos in the right places. Arguments and disagreements will always come up in this world. Within the church, within our families, we need to understand how to work through disagreements in a biblical way. We can see from this passage how to work through issues. But the big difference that we have today that the Jerusalem Council didn't is this. The entire New Testament. We have the whole counsel of God right here in front of us. And it was given, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, for correction, for teaching, for reproof, for training, and all of righteousness. We have the blessing of when there's struggles within the church or within our families. We have the blessing to turn to God's word and read it and learn how to work through disagreements that will arise. That will arise. I pray that this can be an opportunity for you guys to grow as, as you experience disagreements within your lives. Let's pray.